everybody. Thanks for being here, and welcome to Ocean Solutions, a Noise Lab podcast. I'm Dr. Morgan Reed Raven, a biogeochemist and professor at the University of California in Santa Barbara. In this podcast, we're talking with inspirational individuals who are working on some of the largest issues of our time at the intersection of climate, ocean conservation, and human well-being. This week's topic is impossible to ignore. Extreme weather is getting more extreme. As I record this, Hurricane Zeta is headed to New Orleans, and the two largest fires on record in Colorado are threatening to merge into a terrifying megafire before the snows arrive. Our guest today, Dr. Danielle Tuman, works to understand why these events are happening and how they will continue to evolve in the future. Buckle up. Danielle, thanks so much for taking the time to meet with us this morning. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So to get us started, could you define the central issue or issues that motivates your work? Yeah, so in really simple terms, I'm really interested in understanding what's going on with all these fires, floods, droughts. We know we've been seeing more and more of them these days. Well, it feels like that. So. I'm trying to understand, is it normal or is it part of the natural cycle to have um, so many of these kind of events? Or are we as humans doing something to the environment to make them more severe, more frequent? That's what I mainly look at. I also look at in the future, if we're going to change the environment a lot more as humans, like keep putting um, more stuff in the atmosphere and keep changing the land surface. Is that something that's going to um, make these type of events even larger or more frequent? So that's mostly what I'm interested in doing. And hopefully I do. So, (laughs) Well, I mean, this is certainly something that is near and dear to our hearts here in Santa Barbara, just locally. We're observing in Colorado right now, just enormous Mm -hmm. fires. The whole West Coast has been dealing with these fires. Yeah, so I do think about fires a lot. So right now, as you said, we're experiencing some really large fires in in the observed record. These are the largest fires and most severe fires that we're seeing in parts of California, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado. But yeah, at the same time, other parts of the world are experiencing other extremes. So, So in the southeastern U.S., they're experiencing a record number of tropical cyclones this year. We've actually had the most number of named storms this year than any other year. So uh, people may know that we usually use the English alphabet to name all the storms. But right now we've switched over to the Greek alphabet because we've already made use of all the English alphabet. So you can just imagine just how many storms there are out there. So 27 is the number, actually. Is this the first time we've delved into the Greek alphabet? It's the first time since 2005. So there was only one other time and it was in 2005. And, but we've gone further than that. Wow. This year. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. 
Wow. Okay. So we're seeing a lot more of these large storms. What are some of the other observations about how hurricanes have been changing? Yeah. So what I specifically work on in terms of hurricanes is looking at the rainfall associated with these hurricanes. I looked at hurricanes and tropical cyclones in the past hundred years, and I found that major hurricanes can dump out the most rainfall out of all other categories of hurricanes. And what's really interesting is that these major hurricanes usually dump out the most rain after they've made landfall and traveled inland. So even though coastal regions might see a lot of storm surges and high winds, inland regions might not see those, but they do see a lot of rain and a lot of flooding. And we found that this rainfall associated with these major hurricanes has actually increased in more recent years. So we have been seeing an increase in kind of the intensity or amount of rain that falls during these hurricanes. It seems like this would be one of the impacts that would cover potentially a really wide swath of area too, stretching pretty far inland. Yeah, so inland areas can be really affected by rainfall. Actually, some reports have shown that most of the damages you get from hurricanes are because of rainfall and flooding. Not only does flooding damage buildings, homes, businesses, they also damage a lot of the infrastructure. So roads become unusable, and this kind of prevents any emergency services from moving around and trying to get to people who need it. It also causes power outages. It causes issues with water supply. So yes, there are some really dangerous impacts that come from these flooding. And we saw a lot of this during Hurricane Harvey in Texas a couple of years ago, and also Hurricane Florence, and all the other storms that we're seeing today, where flooding can be really damaging to different communities. From what I've seen in the news, it also seems like a lot of these impacts you're talking about now on infrastructure or water quality really affect the ability of the community to recover, even after the hurricane is long gone. Yeah, these can linger for a lot longer, more long-term damages. You've mentioned a bunch of catastrophic potential effects of these more frequent, more powerful hurricanes. Flooding, storm surge, rainfall, direct winds, assumably are on this list as well. Did I miss anything? And then why is this happening? There are definitely some impacts to the natural environment as well. So you can imagine a lot of beach habitats getting affected. These kind of habitats aren't used to these kind of uh, storms, the frequency or the strengths of the storms. So they could also uh, be affected in the long term. Okay. Why? What's happening? So there's two things going on with the rainfall side of things. One is that because the atmosphere is warming, the atmosphere is holding a lot more moisture than before. And so a hurricane is able to dump out more rain if it already has a lot of moisture in it. The second part of it is that we've also been seeing that hurricanes have been slowing down. So as they travel inland, they're traveling slower than they did before. So in that way, a tropical storm can just kind of hang out in a specific region and keep dumping out rain. And this can cause a specific location and have more of these detrimental flooding effects. So do we understand this process fairly well then of why hurricanes are intensifying or are there really big open questions still? There are definitely some big open questions. 
So one big open question is if storms are likely to become more frequent in the future or if they're just getting stronger. Yeah. Okay. So before we talk about your methods, and I have so many questions about your methods, I also want to talk about fire because yeah, that is so close to us out here, out West. Can you tell us a little bit about what are we actually observing? Are we really seeing this intensification of fires? Yeah, we're actually seeing fires today are a lot larger when they burn and more severe compared to like 30 years ago. There is a clear trend in the fire size and the severity of fires, especially in the Western U.S. And this increasing trend can be due to multiple reasons. So there are three main things you need for a fire to ignite and burn and spread. The first really important factor is you need a lot of vegetation and need the vegetation to be dry to get a large, severe fire. So we as humans have been affecting vegetation by not allowing uh, more natural fires to burn. And so this is causing vegetation to grow and increase. Another thing we're doing is we're changing the atmosphere and the weather patterns. So we're getting a lot more drought and this is causing the vegetation to be dry. So we're kind of creating these ripe conditions for a fire to spread. Uh, the second main thing you need for a fire is an ignition source. So this can be a natural source such as lightning or a human cost source such as fireworks or a campfire or or an exploding okay. transformer. Yes, or like down power lines or exploding mm -hmm. transformer, exactly, which are becoming more common these days. This is because our infrastructure is getting old and the structures are failing a lot more frequently than before. And another thing that uh, we're doing as humans is we're moving more into these more forested areas, what they call wildland urban interfaces. And you can kind of see this in California, you can see a lot of houses being built in the like forested hills. A lot of people are moving into these kind of areas. And just by having humans present there, there's a higher chance that you would get a human caused ignition. There, one open question is we're not really sure whether lightning has been changing in recent years, the frequency of lightning. There were some absolutely terrifying lightning storms this year. I've never yeah. seen anything like it. Right. Because lightning is so hard to observe. Only now are we starting to observe lightning using satellites, but we really don't have a long-term record of lightning. And so we really are not sure whether we're seeing more of these storms. Like, was this just one a one-off event or is this a more of a long-term trend where we have been seeing more of these storms. So that's a big open question too, in terms of ignition sources. The third main thing you need for a fire is a really suitable weather conditions. So that's uh, mostly what I study. So you need warm, dry, windy conditions for a fire to be able to ignite and spread. We're getting a lot more days where these conditions are suitable for fires okay. um, than they used to be. Yeah. So is this the part of the research that you are working on particularly is trying to figure out how many of these days we have now and how many we might expect in future years? Yeah. So that's exactly what I do. I try to understand what specific activities we're doing to change the frequency of these types of days. We know that warmer temperatures higher winds and lower precipitation levels can lead to these fire days. 
I try to understand how as we emit more greenhouse gas emissions or aerosols or as we change the land surface, how these kind of weather patterns can change to lead to these kind of extreme fire weather conditions. What do you mean by aerosols? Why are they involved? Yeah. So we know that greenhouse gases are uh, well mixed over globes. So their, their main effect is warming the climate. Aerosols, on the other hand, can have a lot more localized effects. So they are not as mixed and they can also have a range of effects. So depending on what type of aerosols you have, whether you have the small white specks or you have more like black carbon and what their sources are, they can either cause a cooling effect or they can also cause the warming effect and a drying effect. If your aerosols are light and light colored as well, and they're kind of at the top of the atmosphere, they can reflect and dissipate a lot of the sunlight up there. And so this would have a cooling effect and that would cause your extreme fire weather conditions or these red flag days to become less frequent. If you have more of these darker aerosols and heavier, they're likely to uh, be lower down in the atmosphere so they can absorb more um, of the sunlight and cause warmer temperatures. And they can also kind of start messing with cloud formation. To form a cloud, you need particles for kind of moisture to group in on and uh, form a cloud. But if you have too many of these, you can have less cloud formation if you, if you have too many of these condensation nuclei. So this can uh, decrease your rainfall um, over certain regions, so it can cause drier conditions. So to back um, up for a second, when we're talking about yeah. aerosols, we're talking about teeny tiny little particles that are so little that they don't sink because of gravity in the atmosphere, right? right. Where are they coming from? So they can come from a bunch of different places. They can be industrial, so just from power plants or cars or factories, or they can also come from burning. So when you do have a, like example, a fire, you release a lot of aerosols, which you might have seen here in Santa Barbara when we had the poor air quality days. This is because we had a bunch of aerosols in the atmosphere that are bad for our health. I think I tasted them actually, yes. Yeah, so the when you burn organic matter, you're more likely to have these kind of darker particles that are a little heavier, so they do tend to sink a little bit and they are darker, so they tend to absorb light versus, versus scattering it. This actually sounds like a potentially dangerous feedback where fires produce lots of black carbon aerosols that then suppress cloud formation so it doesn't rain and put out the fire. Am I getting that right? Because yeah. that sounds yeah. really unfortunate. Yeah, it has been studied quite a bit, but more like for very specific fires or very specific locations. Yeah, this could have potential feedback where you are suppressing rainfall and so your fire can spread even more. Yikes. Yeah. So what is the main takeaway or message of your work on this topic? What have you guys found? Yeah, so we found that, so in the past like 50 years or so, even though greenhouse gases were warming the atmosphere and we were experiencing a higher risk of these kind of red flag or extreme fire weather days, 
We were also emitting a lot of aerosols thanks to hairspray or cars without any smog regulation. And there was kind of this competing impact between greenhouse gases and aerosols where aerosols were cooling and reducing the frequency of these extreme fire weather days while greenhouse gases were, were trying to increase the frequency of these extreme fire weather days. So they were kind of competing with each other especially over like industrialized regions. But today and going into the future, we've actually been reducing the aerosols that we've been emitting into the atmosphere. And this is because it's bad for our health. So, so there's, there are a lot of regulations in a lot of countries for aerosols and we've been seeing a decline in aerosols, which is really good for the environment and for our health. But because we don't have those aerosols anymore and we are still increasing greenhouse gases, we're continuing to warm the atmosphere and the aerosols are no longer cooling the atmosphere as much as they used to. And so you no longer have this competing effect and you're actually having greenhouse gases kind of take over and increase these kind of extreme fire weather days. So, so really interesting. So even though aerosol, it's so great that we don't have as many aerosols in the atmosphere anymore. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, because we're still emitting greenhouse gases, we're going to um, be seeing more of these extreme fire weather days. Um, well, that's a little <laughs> bit discouraging. I'm sorry. But-, <laughs> but the exciting thing is that we are becoming better at understanding these interactions. And so we will become better at kind of managing fires. So it's exciting that we do know more. Okay. It is a scary future, but I think we're human. So we can take knowledge and try to make our world a little better with this new knowledge. So, And that's where you come in, right? You're trying to understand these processes and predict them in the future. Tell us a little bit about how you do your work. What tools do you use? What approaches? Yeah, so I use a lot of data, very computational. I don't go out in the field. The field work looks really exciting, but I like my little cozy office. (laughs) And so I use a lot of data that other people have collected or are being collected by satellites or ships or stations. So the types of data I look at are temperature, rainfall, winds. And I also use data from climate models. So climate models are these really fun tools that you can basically use to kind of experiment on the earth without actually experimenting on the earth. So- Which we also do, but- (laughs) Which we also do, but some of the experiments we run are really scary, so I'm glad we don't. It's hard Um, to have a control group on the planet. That's our problem, right? Exactly. So we can use our model to have a control kind of experiment where we don't do anything to the planet, or we can have a model where we are doing different things to the planet and we can understand what the outcomes are that impacting our actual planet. So yeah, so these climate models are great. They uh, represent a lot of the atmospheric, ocean and land physics that we know about. And uh, these models are basically a bunch of equations that are run continuously through time and for each location across the globe. And we can uh, use these models to estimate rainfall, temperature, winds, ocean temperatures, kind of whatever you want, whatever is represented in the model. So they're really great tools and they can provide a lot of data for me to dig into. 
So that's the second thing I do. I really dig into this data. I use um, a lot of statistical methods, different coding languages and visualization tools to kind of understand what this data is trying to tell me. So kind of with the fire stuff, trying to understand whether we have more of these extreme fire weather days or less of them in the different model simulations. These climate models sound just like incredibly powerful tools to run experiments with. What are they good at and what are they less good at? Yeah, so climate models are great. We can run experiments on our Earth without messing up our Earth even more. They're really good at like large-scale weather patterns, simulating things like temperature, rainfall, winds on a large scale. So because we run these climate models up for the whole globe, we can't run them at a super high resolution. So we kind of have to average over a lot of areas so that they they can run in a reasonable amount of time with a reasonable amount of computational power. So even though they can get kind of these large scale temperature patterns or precipitation patterns very well, they tend to fail when we're trying to understand more small scale things like hurricanes or thunderstorms or hailstorms or, you know, like tornadoes. These kind of more small scale events aren't very well simulated in climate models. Another issue we have with climate models is they don't do a great job representing some of the land surface dynamics that can be really important for these different weather patterns. So for example, climate models don't usually get soil moisture right. And this is because we actually have not a not very good understanding of soil moisture on a global scale. So, and this is because we don't have a lot of observations of soil moisture. And so why is soil moisture important? So soil moisture is important because it can tell us a lot about droughts. Soil moisture is actually a really great way to understand the moisture balance on the surface because it accumulates all the effects of rainfall as well as evaporation and as well as how much plants are using. Soil moisture is a really good way to define drought for agricultural purposes. However, there are other Uh, types of drought that are important for other people. Like a a dam operator wouldn't really care about soil moisture, but they would really care about how much water is in the river. Mm -hmm. So you can have a really different assessment of drought depending on whether you look at soil moisture or river flows. And that's something I think about a lot is how are we defining these kind of events? We want to make sure that we're defining them in a way that people care about, you know. That seems like a fascinating layer to put on top of these model outputs too, is once you have a map of rainfall, then you have to ask who is where and who cares about what, where, you know, what, what are the human communities that live in that grid cell and what do they care about? Exactly. What are we looking at here in California for the next few decades in terms of drought and rainfall? Yeah, California is actually a really interesting place. Even though it's warming, so we can expect more drying, the changes in rainfall patterns are more uncertain. If you look at projections of rainfall using really any climate model. We see California kind of in this area where it's very uncertain our outcomes in terms of rainfall. But we do know that it's going to be warming. And actually this past drought that we had in between 2012 and 2017, 
was mostly due to a warmer climate. So another really interesting thing for California is that while we are getting these really dry years and drier years, when we do get our wet years, they're a lot wetter than they used to be. So after that 2012 to 2017 drought, we had um, an exceptional year for rainfall during the rainy season. I remember there were multiple landslides. The Pacific Coast Highway was closed for a while because of all the landslides. And we're seeing that these kind of very dry to very wet transitions are going to become a lot more frequent. We're still going to get rainy events and dry events, but they're going to be much rainier and much drier. So our so, extreme weather is kind of going in both directions at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So we've talked a little bit here about the limitations of these models and their grid cell mm-hmm. size and things like that. But clearly these are really the best tools we have to think about medium term earth future. So how do we make these models better? How do we get better data out of the tools we have? Yeah. The first way and the way I think is really important is to have more observations of the earth system so we know what's going on in the real earth system and try to put that in the model the problem is that we rely a lot on past data and we can't really go back in the past and measure what's happened the more of that data we have the better our models will become because we can then tell the model exactly what to do well, and you can um, know if you get it right presumably also yeah, and you can do a better job of kind of validating your model. You can you can figure out better if you're getting it right or not. Mm-hmm. Another thing we can do is really try to improve the land surface models. So one little piece I'm I'm really interested in is to looking at the effects of fire on a landscape. So if we burn all the vegetation in a certain place, then that means that the vegetation has to regrow before we get the next fire. But the climate models do a kind of a bad job of um, representing the vegetation after a fire. How do you choose which model you use? Do you use just one or are there a whole bunch? There are a whole bunch. There are many climate models out there. If you're familiar with the IPCC report, it's basically the big climate report that a lot of uh, countries collaborate on. To create that report, scientists use a bunch of models that different countries have created. So in the last IPC report, I would say about there were about 40 models participating. A lot of them are freely available, so you can download them and run them. And a lot of them already have data out there that's been simulated by these models. So you have kind of your choice of models. For me, I tend to use a lot of these models together because they all get something right. <laughs> So it's important to understand the kind of the range of outcomes that you could get depending on the different models, because mm. not, there's no one model that's perfect. The same models that might get rainfall over California really well might not do, might not do such a great job over the Amazon, for example. Mm-hmm. So especially when I'm looking at more of these global features of the climate, I really try to use multiple models at the same time to try to understand kind of the range of predictions. Sure. So if you get the same answer with 20 different models, then you can feel pretty good that it's a robust Exactly. Outcome. Yeah. And so that's what I was talking about with the California uh, precipitation. It's hard to feel confident in these projections of just rainfall over California. But when you look at the temperature projections, they all look the same. They're all like, it's warming. <laughs> you know, it's 
There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about your day-to-day life? It sounds like you're spending most of your time on your computer working with data. What is a regular day in your life like? So I'm usually working on around two to three projects simultaneously. And that doesn't mean I work on those three projects every day. It just means that I might work on one for like a few days and work on the next one for another few days. And it mostly depends on a project can be in a design phase for me or an analysis phase or a writing stage. If I'm in a design phase, I'm usually uh, reading a lot of papers. I'm talking to my collaborators to try to understand what the best way is to kind of answer the questions that we're interested in. And and then I can be in an, an analysis phase. So once we have the research question down, then I start to pull up or download the data that I think would be the most useful and start to think about what kind of analyses I'm going to do. And then I'm kind of in a code writing stage, writing a lot of code to read in this data, process it, to analyze it, to visualize it. So to create like awesome figures that can really tell you the story of the data. And then lastly, I can be in a writing stage of a paper where I'm writing. So that's kind of my day-to-day on my specific projects. So many of your results are relevant to people living in places that are worried about extreme weather. How do you try to connect all of this work that you've done and your academic writing to the decision makers and communities that would be interested in your results? Yeah, so one of the projects that I'm on is I'm actually meeting with what we call stakeholders. So city planners or insurance companies or emergency management groups. We're meeting with them to try to better kind of shape our questions our research questions and our methods and our analyses. So that's one way we try to connect with people who might care about this work is not only by presenting our findings to them, but working with them to establish what questions they're actually really interested in, because there's no point in doing the science that I'm doing if it's not going to be useful for anybody. How did you get into this field? What was your professional path that landed you on climate modeling? Yeah. So my professional path started at NC State. I did my undergrad and um, at NC State in civil engineering. And our civil engineering program was pretty broad. So you could take classes anywhere from structural engineering to transportation engineering. But what I became most interested in is kind of water resources and environmental engineering. And I also joined Engineers Without Borders, which is um, a nonprofit organization that designs and implements projects for different communities around the world. And the project that I became part of was a water collection and sanitation project for a small school in the Andes in Bolivia. Oh, cool. And so, yeah. So it was really cool. So we did everything from researching, communicating with the community, and also designing and implementing a little water collection system for the school that we were working with. And it was really awesome. I got to travel over there. And oh, it was nice. A really great trip. Yeah. So I did that during my bachelor's. And by that time, I was really more interested in hydrology and the impact of climate on hydrology. So that was my main master's uh, project. Sure. And while I was doing that master's project, I became really, really interested in research. And I thought it was really cool that you could kind of come up with a question that you're interested in and just 
find out the answer, right? <laughs> <laughs> and for me, I really like the part where you, you know, have all this data and you like, you find this one thing that nobody knows yet, but mm-hmm. you know. And so it's like, right, this kind of feeling right before the, the paper is written and right after you've done your analysis and you're like, ooh. You have secret knowledge. Exactly. <laughs> and it could be something really, really small, but it is still really exciting. Uh-huh. Um, so in my, I kind of had that feeling in my master's. I did apply to both engineering and, and research positions after my master's. But the one job I did get, I only got one job, <laughs> one interview, was in a research position. And it just kind of felt perfect. So in that position, I was a research assistant for two years for um, an Oak Ridge National Lab. And my uh, main research project was looking at drought over the globe and these, all these different climate models. That's where I really learned how to code. I didn't, my coding was quite poor before that. So yeah, I finished my PhD years ago and I've been a postdoc since then. Great. Yeah. Even further back. Mm. Where did you grow up? What's your backstory? (laughs) How did you end up at NC State? Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) I ask myself that every day. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But so I grew up kind of all over the Middle East. I'm originally Lebanon, but I actually didn't live in Lebanon. I lived during high school. I lived in Cyprus, which is a tiny little island in the Mediterranean Sea. Beautiful island. Kind of reminds me a lot of Santa Barbara, actually very similar kind of beachy feel. We have a class that's called geography, which is a mix of both physical geography, some earth science-y type stuff, and human geography, which is more of the political science and economics of the world. I ha- we had an awesome teacher who would take us out on these field trips, uh, like overnight field trips, where we would go measure rivers, measure their speed, measure their width, you know, wade in the river, which was really fun. So yeah, even though I went and did civil engineering with no real idea of doing earth science uh, later on in my life, I, I think that always stuck with me. And I always had like a, an internal want to know more about the earth system. Yeah. Um, well, I also see a theme of hydrology here as well. Were there other desert places that you lived? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So before, before Cyprus, I lived in Dubai. Uh-huh. And so, or the United Arab Emirates is the country, but you might know it better as Dubai. And that's, that's a complete desert like that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Vegas. It's like built in a desert with no, no water source other than the ocean. So a really interesting thing is that a lot of the water in Dubai is actually um, from desalination. So they do have a lot of desalination plants and that's where the country gets a lot of um, its water from. And so just living kind of in that dry environment and just being fascinated that like we have water, you know, coming out of our taps. Yeah. Pretty amazing. So that's, I think something that was like internalized in me as well. Mm -hmm. Another thing that, so in Cyprus, we would also get droughts just like we do in California. We have dry seasons in the summer. But there, when you get a drought, your water actually, the tap doesn't work anymore. Like your tap water does not come out of the tap anymore. You're like, oh, now we have a drought. So you go out and buy like bottles of water from the grocery store to like survive for a few days before the water comes back. Well, you can't miss that. that, Yeah. So that's something that's just like, 
even though it was kind of like part of life and it wasn't really that scary then because luckily we did have the resources to go get water and buy water. It was still like when you move to the US and there's a drought, that doesn't happen. So it's just like really interesting that these different, even though different countries can feel the same level of drought in terms of the climate or the weather, their impacts can be a lot different depending on where you live, how the infrastructure is set up. So that's something I always think about in my research too. Absolutely. Okay. So if someone is listening to this and they are super inspired and they would love to follow in your professional footsteps and work on climate modeling and honestly addressing some of these uncertainties that are some of the biggest and most immediate implications of climate change that affect people really fast today, last year. Do you have any advice for them? How would you get involved in a field like this? Yeah. So I think a really great time to get involved is in undergrad to uh, do research and be to be able to lead research projects and to be able to kind of create your own research questions. I think it's really important to have a PhD because that time really teaches you how to uh, create those kind of research questions. And But you can also start early in your undergrad to really see if you do like research. And one way to do that is to, there are a lot of summer research programs that a lot of universities offer to undergrads that are either paid. Sometimes I'd buy, I would say, go for the paid ones. <laughs> It'll make your life a lot nicer. <laughs> and, or you could just ask around um, if there's a professor who like, whose class you really liked, they might have a cool research project that you could help out on. I think one thing to remember is so I said that I code a lot and I know how to use these big climate models, but I didn't know that all this stuff when I went and did my research assistantship, like that was all new to me. And I think as long as you have a good mentor, you can just, you can learn that stuff. It's not something you need to know before you get into the field. So don't let that deter you. All right, Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I have really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot about things I care yeah. about very much. <laughs> I really enjoyed this too. I hope it's uh, useful for people listening. And yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for having me. You bet. Have a great day. Thanks so much for being here today. And thanks as always to Eleanor Durand and to Dust on the Radio for our theme song, One Way Trip to Mars. Next week's guest is Heather Dennis, advanced planner with the County of Marin. We're going to learn about how local governments in California are working to protect coastal communities and make them more resilient to sea level rise. I'll see you there.